We saw this morning that there are graded levels of motivation, and the way that we develop ourselves spiritually is from one stage to the next, and each of these stages builds on the previous one. On this initial level, we appreciate the precious human life that we have, and we realize that it's not going to last forever. Death will come for sure, and we have no idea when. And the only thing that will be of help at the time of death are the various positive imprints, instincts that we've built up on our mental continuum. And after we die, then our mental continuum will continue with rebirth, and either we have a worse state of rebirth or one of the better states of rebirth. And so we really dread being in a worse situation, which we have no opportunity to continue our spiritual development. And when we look at the direction that the Buddha's teachings and his attainment offers us, we have confidence that going in that direction will help us to avoid worse rebirths, and that eventually it can lead us to liberation, and also moved by compassion, we see that this safe direction can lead us to the enlightened state of a Buddha, which we are best able to help others. And so we put that safe direction in our lives of working to attain a true stopping of all the destructive, negative, disturbing aspects on our mental continuum, all our shortcomings, all the true types of mind, we call the true paths, true pathway minds that will enable us to realize our full potentials and which are those realized states. And in other words, we were speaking of in terms of the third and fourth noble truths. As exist in full on the mental continuum of a Buddha, and some of them exist on the mental continuum of highly realized beings, the Sangha, so-called Aryas, and we also understand that we have the full potential of the Buddha nature to be able to achieve this ourselves. And the first thing that we learn in order to be able to go in this safe direction is about behavioral cause and effect. It has to do with karma, teachings of karma. And in order to avoid the grossest types of suffering and worst rebirths, we need to understand that they are the result of destructive behavior. So we try to avoid destructive behavior, just acting, speaking, or thinking under the influence of disturbing emotions. And we try as much as possible to act in constructive ways, since they will result in better rebirth states, specifically those of a precious human rebirth. Now, it's important to understand what we mean by a constructive action in Buddhism. Let's speak about the destructive action of killing, taking the life of another being. Well, one way of doing that is hunting. Well, I never hunt anyway. I've never hunted. I have no interest in hunting. So the fact that I don't hunt, that itself is not what we're talking about here. I mean, that's very good, but still, that's not really the constructive behavior explained here. Rather, what it's referring to is when the impulse or urge comes to my mind to swat that mosquito and kill it, I stop, I understand that if I do that, that's acting out of anger, thinking just of me, 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 and that will result in making a strong habit 
that anything that I don't like, the way I deal with it is to kill it, rather than trying to find some peaceful way of dealing with it, like catching the mosquito in a cup with a paper underneath it and taking it outside. And so the constructive action here is to refrain from killing it when we wanted to kill it, because we understand cause and effect. That's the constructive action. That is what builds up the strong potentials in our mind. Now, of course, there are even a stronger level of constructive action, which would be not only to not kill that mosquito, but to feed it. Let it have a little drop of blood. After all, we have a lot. There are a few people, I have actually met them, who are able to do that. But anyway, I've seen that. So, just the fact that I don't hunt, that is not so strong positive action. Now, what questions do you have? Yes. So let me summarize the question. The question is basically, how do we distinguish an authentic teacher from a fraudulent one? Since there have been many examples of teachers who perhaps are not authentic, which have given a bad reputation to either Buddhism or yoga or whatever. Well, we need to, first of all, examine that teacher for a long time before accepting them as our own spiritual teacher. Actually, the texts say we need to examine them up to 12 years, and the teacher needs to examine us similarly to see whether or not we are a qualified student. Well, usually we don't have the patience to wait 12 years, but we need to see, is this teacher a living example of what they teach? Uh, Particularly, we need to look at their ethics. Are they an ethical person, or do they try to cheat people? Are they trying to exploit people just for money or power or sex? Is their motivation simply and purely to benefit the students? And then we look to see what their attitude is toward their teachers, how the greater community of spiritual teachers regards them, their own teachers, their colleagues, other teachers. We can also look at the effect that they have on their students, although that's not an easy thing to evaluate because some students might be extremely disturbed when they come to the teacher, so not much can be done or they might be completely brainwashed as part of a cult, but usually we can tell that. So these are the main things that we look for. And don't rely just on the charisma of a teacher. Hitler had a lot of charisma. And don't look at just the fact that they might be very uh, powerful and have many followers. Again, Hitler had those. But see what type of person they are. And just because somebody might be an authentic teacher doesn't mean that they are necessarily the proper teacher for us. Even if the teacher is fully qualified, we need to feel something with the teacher. We need to feel inspiration. The function of the teacher is not just to give us information. We can get information from a book on the Internet. The teacher can answer questions, can correct us if we make mistakes. But even more important than that, the teacher needs to inspire us by his or her living example. It's that inspiration that we feel that gives us a lot of the energy to continue on the spiritual path. As they say, it's helpful to start, it's helpful to keep us on the path, and it's helpful to go all the way to achieve the result. It's not so simple, but we shouldn't just wait and expect someone to just land in our room and fall out of the sky. But we need to make an effort to, to look, to examine 
Okay, so she's asking that in Buddhism we speak about overcoming attachment, repulsion, and indifference. And she'd like to ask about indifference coming from a communist state. So as a background, often people have developed a different attitude to just take care of themselves and not worry or involve ourselves in other issues, others, and so on, and what is recommended in Buddhism when we find somebody that is uh, in trouble or hurt, do we just remain indifferent? Do we get involved? How involved do we get? Just think of others, not ourselves. How does it affect our balance, etc.? Okay. Now, what's interesting in the way that you formulated the question was that you used the word interfere. Interfere gives the impression that you shouldn't do it, and it was none of our business. And so, helping others is quite different from interfering. Our aim becoming a Buddha is to be able to benefit everybody equally. So our hearts have to be open equally to everybody. So the most fundamental thing that we have to work on first, level-minded, that's not where we start thinking of everybody, but once we get to that level where we can, then the first thing we have to work on is overcoming favoritism, which means the attitude that I'm only going to help those that I like and I'm not going to help those that I dislike. And strangers, well, forget about them. I don't know them. So that, of course, can be based on all sorts of prejudice. I'm only going to help the pretty ones. I'm only going to help the ones that can pay me. I mean, there's all sorts of further degenerations of that attitude. So we try to even out our attitude toward everybody. Everybody, same, same. It's on that basis that we can develop a loving attitude toward everyone. Now, of course, we can only help those that are receptive and whom we have the capacity to help. Not a Buddha yet. And so I can't multiply myself into a million forms and help everybody all at the same time. And I don't know how to help everybody. Very simple things. If somebody's car breaks down, I have no idea how to fix a car, so how can I help them? Well, I could call somebody who does know how to help. So there is something we could do. But if they don't want any help, and I force myself on them, that's interfering. They have to be open to our help and want our help. So how much do we get involved with strangers, problems, you know, somebody getting robbed on the street or something like that? We have to see, am I capable or not? What can I do? That's very difficult to really know. Sometimes it's not so easy to distinguish thinking of an example of when I was on the underground, the metro subway in Berlin. There was this man and woman and screaming and yelling at the woman. And people around thought that he was going to hit her. And so they uh, tried to calm him down. And the woman got very angry because this was her husband and they were having a fight and this was part of their (laughs) usual relationship and it was none of anybody else's business. So... It's very difficult to really know, isn't it? But we try to use our common sense and see what am I able to do, what am I not able to do. Go neither to the extreme of I'm God and I can save everybody in the world. And then we feel guilty and beat ourselves when we're not able to do it. And we're the martyr while we do it. Oh, I will suffer. That's one extreme. The other extreme is to help everybody, just me. So we have to use our judgment in any situation. It's hard to generalize. But if we can help, we help. Deva, a great Indian Buddhist master, had a wonderful line. He wrote, Suffering should be eliminated 
Not because it's your suffering or my suffering. Suffering has no owner. Suffering should be eliminated simply because it hurts. I'll give a simple example. I live in an apartment building, ten families living in it. I go down into the entrance hall, and there's trash on the floor. Take it up. Put it in as a, a bin to put the trash in. Does it matter who dropped this trash? No, not at all. Should I wait for once a week when somebody comes and cleans the hall? No. I pick it up simply because it has to be picked up and put in the bin. And I don't congratulate myself because of that and say how wonderful I am. And put a little sign, Alex, put this in the bin. <laughs> the example Shanti Deva says is that if you have a thorn in your foot and your hand takes the thorn out, you know, the foot doesn't have to thank the hand. The hand doesn't have to say, oh, oh it's so wonderful. You take it out because, of course, you take it out. You're connected. So we try to help others in that way when we are able to. And it's important to not overestimate ourselves. Perfectly acceptable and very positive to say, I'm sorry, I can't help you, but I think this other person could help you. Or, I don't know who could help you, but maybe you could find such a person by doing this and that. Okay, so two questions, one at a time. What about <laughs> brain death and does the mental continuum wait until the body is dead before going on to the next life? And the other has to do with uh, schizophrenia. Is there a way of overcoming that? I've been with Solonis the Dalai Lama when he's met with various doctors, scientists, and what the doctors and scientists have said is that it is a very, very difficult question, and they don't have the answer of exactly when does death occur and when does life begin. And so this is something that, of course, is a very important point in terms of medical ethics, and it's not an easy question. From the Buddhist point of view, even when we have stopped breathing, then mental continuum has not completely disassociated from the body. There's deeper steps of disassociation. But what exactly brain death corresponds to in the Buddhist analysis, this is very difficult. What step it corresponds to? As for schizophrenia, there are various physical bases for that. Neurologists say, I'm not a neurologist, I'm certainly not an expert on that. Can somebody overcome that? I don't see, theoretically, why not. Okay, so can a schizophrenic, by becoming more aware of the situation and developing themselves to whatever degree they can in that lifetime of schizophrenia, have a more fortunate rebirth? Why not? However, we need to understand that the process here of rebirth is not linear. We have countless number of karmic potentials for a countless number of rebirths. So just what we've done in this lifetime isn't necessarily going to bring about what happens in the next lifetime, immediately following the lifetime. Bluster of karmic tendencies, and there are many that go into shaping a, a rebirth, could be from many, many other lifetimes, some of them more recent, some of them more distant. A lot depends on the state of mind with which we die the state of mind that we've had most frequently during the period before we die. There are many, many factors that affect what actually will ripen at the time of death. But if someone has done many positive things during a lifetime as a schizophrenic, certainly that will have some fruits in the future. It will be affected by anything else the person does. It can either have a strong effect or a weak effect, depending on what it is 
balanced with. So that's what I mean when I say that it's not such a simple linear <coughs> thing. You do this, and then the result follows immediately after. Much more complex than that. So she's asking, in this process of mental continuum and rebirth, what is the function of the soul? What is the place of the soul? And in terms of answering your question, everything depends on how we define soul. And after all, soul is just a word. So it could be referring to all sorts of things that maybe we give a different name. There is something called, in Indian philosophy, Atman. And this is sometimes translated as a soul, sometimes as self. And it is defined differently in different Indian philosophies and religions. They don't all agree, but they agree in general about certain characteristics. Let's call it a soul. They all agree that this soul, or Atman, is static. It never changes. No beginning, no end, eternal. The point is it never changes. It's not affected by anything. The second characteristic is that it's partless. Partless means that either it is the size of a tiny atom, like a spark of life, or it's the size of the universe, as in this Atman is one with Brahma. And the third characteristic is that it can exist separately from a body and mind. So it goes on from one to another. And it lives inside a body and mind, and like a, an occupant inside a house, and owns it and uses it like a machine. And then Indian philosophies will differ. Some say that that soul or Atman is conscious. Some will say that it's not conscious. It uses a separate mind to know things. So there are different interpretations. But the general idea is this. In Indian philosophy and Buddhism says there is no such thing. So what Buddhism is saying is that there is what we call a self, a conventional me, is the more technical term. But whether you want to call it a soul or not, it doesn't really matter. It's just a word. But this is something which is changing from moment to moment. We agree, it has no beginning and no end. But now I'm doing this, now I'm doing that, so it's changing. And it has many parts. It's not something findable, you know, like a little spark or the size of the universe. And it cannot exist separately from some sort of basis of a body and mind, whether gross like our body and mind now, or very subtle. And we have mental activity moment to moment to moment to moment, and that me, that conventional me, is just an imputation. It's like something abstract, like what we were discussing about a habit. It's not something that you can find solidly inside each moment, but the way of putting together all these moments, we can say, me. Me is not just the word me, but it's what the word refers to on the basis of this continuum of moments of mental activity. Like that example we used of Star Wars, the movie. The movie Star Wars is not the title. The title is just the name of the movie. And Star Wars is not any one moment of the film, but the name Star Wars refers to the movie Star Wars on the basis of all these moments. Is there a movie Star Wars? Yes, of course there's a movie Star Wars. Where is it? Point to it in this moment, that moment? No. To follow a plot line? Yes. Same thing with me. Um, these other views of a soul that doesn't change and so on is a projection of something impossible 
on top of this basis of the conventional me that actually does exist. That projection we call the false me. But it's because we believe, we identify with this false me, with this projection, that we identify with something and I'm always, you know, young or I'm always have to have my way, or I'm always this, or I'm always that. We change moment to moment. And if we analyze deeper and deeper, we find that underlying our disturbing emotions and so on is a belief that I am this false me. So if we put this into psychological terms of the West, the belief that I am this uh, false me, this exaggerated me, this impossible me, that belief we would call an inflated ego. And the belief uh, just that I am this conventional me, that we would call a healthy ego. Very important to make this difference in Buddhism and not think in terms of a general misconception that so many people have about Buddhism, that Buddhism says there's no self, there's no ego, and we think there's nothing. We must be careful not to accept the misconception that so many people have about Buddhism. And that misconception is that Buddhism says that there is no self, there is no me at all. Because if I don't exist and you don't exist, it doesn't matter what I do, does it? Nobody's responsible for anything. But Buddhism doesn't say that. It identifies that as nihilism, denying everything. Well, Buddhism says, of course I exist, and of course you exist, but not in some impossible, exaggerated way. So if you want to call this conventional me, which is going to continue from lifetime to lifetime, in other words, the movie goes on from one life to another, if you want to call that a soul, fine, it doesn't matter, it's just a name. No. Well, can we only improve our mental activity? Is the question. Well, this is the basis. Based on our mind, on our mental activity, then what follows from that is how we act and how we speak, how we relate to others. And what we want to do is to purify away, in other words, get rid of, as part of that mental activity, confusion, selfishness, disturbing emotions, and realize all its potentials, which is its ability to love everybody equally, to understand everything, and so on. Now, in doing that, do we improve ourselves? Yes, because he is referring to the continuum of this mental activity. But to say, I'm going to improve myself, what does that mean? Doesn't that mean to work on my attitude, to work on my body, to work on something? You can't just work on me, as if me existed separately from all of that, can you? It's very important to understand how we all have this confusion about ourselves. An example that I love is this attitude that so many of us have. I want you to love me for myself, not for my money, not for my good looks, not for my intellect, but just love me for me. Is there a me separate from all of that? Where is it? So, but automatically we think in terms of that. I have to find myself. What are you finding? So, interesting. Anybody else have a question? Okay, the question is, what is the relationship between karmic aftermath and free will? When we speak about the Buddhist presentation of karma, we are not speaking about either of two extremes, determinism, free will. Both of them are incorrect ways of understanding, according to Buddhism. Determinism means that 
the result is already decided or determined. It's already existing there in the karmic aftermath, tendencies, habits, and so on. It's sitting there waiting to come out. And as soon as the conditions are there, it will pop out of the box, and nothing can change that. Okay, so Buddhism says that's incorrect. And a subcategory of that would be that if somebody else decided, some almighty being decided what's going to happen, and put it in the box, that's a predetermination. Somebody beforehand decided what's going to happen. So Buddhism says also that that is not the case. And they use many examples from logic and just sort of joking and so on to disprove this. There's no need to go into all these logical arguments. On the other hand, free will implies that anything can follow from anything without any cause. As if there were a separate me from this whole causal process that is looking at life like looking at the menu in the restaurant and deciding what to choose. And there is no separate me from mental continuum, karmic aftermath, and so on. So, various conditions, various things will affect what result will come from the karmic aftermath, both what we do and what circumstances we encounter. So it's neither free will nor determinism. We have a choice, but that choice is based on if we choose X or we choose Y, there's a cause for that. And it isn't that I can choose to do anything. I can only choose what's possible. A choice or a decision occurs. That's all that you can say. On the basis of all sorts of mental factors, certainty, discrimination, understanding. I mean, there's so many mental factors that are involved in a decision happening. Is there a me separate from all of this, making the decision? No. But who made the decision? We'd have to say, I made the decision, you didn't make the decision. That's how we understand the conventional me. I made the decision, but it's not some solid me existing somewhere else that can fly out of my body and go into another body. Last question, then we'll take our tea break. Yeah. Is being enlightened a state of mind? It is not just a state of mind, but a state of body and speech and energy. Mental continuum contains all of that. It's not just being aware of things, but perceiving things, doing things, communicating, all of that. It's not outside the state of mind, no. It's part of the mental continuum, and it continues. Does it have qualities? Does it have qualities? Yes. Many qualities, and you can read them. I mean, I have them on my website, for example. So, but his mind encompasses everything. Our mind is capable of encompassing everything. When we get rid of the limitations, the mind is naturally capable of understanding everything. Everything is interconnected, interdependent. Nothing exists isolated, wrapped in plastic all by itself. So, a Buddha has equal love for absolutely everybody, and because everything is interconnected, Buddha understands everything simultaneously. And the Buddha is able to communicate perfectly with everyone, and appear in whatever way is helpful to anyone. But the other person has to be receptive. A Buddha is not an almighty, powerful God. Being all-powerful, omnipotent, from the Buddhist point of view, is impossible. Whatever happens has to be under the influence of causes and conditions. If something is under the influence of causes and conditions, it's not all-powerful. It's not omnipotent.
So in this way, very similar to science. Okay, so then he says, but this ability, this enlightenment could be lost. That's why we need to really examine and understand the third noble truth, the true stopping. Right? The third noble truth, the true stopping, which means that we can get rid of the limitations forever such that they never come back again. So these limitations, etc., are similar to, it says, a cloud in the sky. The sky is not inherently stained by them. Clouds are not an inherent part of the sky. The sky, by nature, is pure. But the clouds are something that are fleeting, they pass. So if one can stay on that pure level of mind, it was always the case, and not go to a situation in which these fleeting stains could come back, then they're not going to come back. I mean, it gets much far more complicated than that. We have the most subtle level of mind. This subtlest level is known as clear light mind. A mind which is like clear light. This is what goes on from lifetime to lifetime, what continues into Buddhahood. It is more subtle than any of the levels at which these so-called stains occur. This is what provides the continuity, and it's possible in meditation to actually be in this state of mind, and one sees that it doesn't have these stains. And it also occurs at the time of death. But it has the habits and tendencies to generate, again, the grosser states where these stains will return. But for that grosser level to return, there has to be some sort of condition that will make it return. doesn't happen without a cause. Right? And that's described by the 12 links of dependent arising, correct? 12 links of dependent arising, it's a technical term. It's a mechanism that describes how rebirth works. If we eliminate what is driving the sequence, then it won't be generated again. It cannot separate it physically or in any way from the rest of the, the chain. We said that everything is dependently originated. So it says that we can't take anything out of the link, out of these 12 links, and say that it is inherently pure. There is nothing pure in the 12 links. So your question doesn't actually pertain to the twelve links. By pure I mean separate or, or outside the twelve links. Is there something pure outside of the twelve links, he's asking? Well, no, because what we're speaking about when we're speaking about the pure nature of the mind is that we're speaking about what underlies the twelve links. Does it exist separately from it? I think that one has to now understand the word separately. There are two kinds of separately. There are certain things that are inseparable and certain things that are separable. So, for instance, um, right and left are inseparable. You can't have right without there being a left. But a glass of water. You can't have a glass of water without a glass of water. However, you could have the glass. The glass without water would not be dependent on the glass of water. I mean, now we're getting into refined areas of logic. The point to understand is that there are certain characteristics of the mental continuum that are part of its fundamental nature and is going to be there whether it is stained or not stained, whether the mind is stained or not stained. It's always there. These characteristics would not be dependently originated, he says, 
Everything depends now on how we understand dependent origination in this context. Are they created anew? Let's say the ability of mental activity to know things. That's part of the essential nature of mental activity. Whether we are a limited being, whether we are a Buddha, same. Does it arise newly? Is it created like a flower coming from a seed? So does it arise dependently in this sense? No. It's always been the nature of the mind, mental activity. So in some Tibetan Buddhist systems, they speak of this as not arising dependently. In other systems of Tibetan Buddhism, describing exactly the same thing, they would say that although the fundamental nature of knowing things is not created and that nature stays the same, nevertheless, from moment to moment, we know different things. Therefore, in terms of its content, it is affected by things, so it is independently arising. So everything depends here in our discussion on the definition of the terms that we use. So there are certain characteristics that are always the case of mental activity, and there are certain characteristics which are not part of the fundamental nature. Now it gets complicated because some of those might have no beginning, like confusion, limitation. But then one has to examine with logic whether or not it is possible for something with no beginning to have an end. So you're saying that there's something that both stays the same, but at the same time changes? No, we're not saying there's something that always stays the same and sometimes changes. We're saying that there's mental activity, and some of its characteristics always remain the same, and some of, well, the ability to know. If you look at it from the point of view of an ability, it stays the same. If you look at it in terms of what it knows, it's different. So then we're predicting something that stays the same is nothing else than that Atman which we're rejecting. So you're saying that something that stays the same is nothing other than the Atman which we're rejecting. No. There are many things that don't change. That doesn't make them all into an Atman. Everything changes. No, everything doesn't change. One plus one is two. It is a fact. Certain facts don't change. The fact that impossible ways of existing don't refer to anything real doesn't change. It's not affected by anything. Is that the Atman? No. So one has to get a little bit more refined. But I think it's time for our tea break. But this is very good. This is the process by which we work with Buddhism. Debate, question, until we clarify our imprecision. It has to be very precise, our understanding. So this is excellent.